please hear the word of the living God. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our Father, as we come to this passage of your inspired, inerrant, infallible, and all-sufficient word, we pray that by your Spirit, Lord, you would transform our hearts and minds. And Lord, if there are any here this evening who do not know you, we pray that by your grace they would repent and believe the gospel. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us here this evening enjoy reading a good novel or watching a quality movie, and in most every case, whether in a novel or a movie, there's always a kind of crisis moment, a moment of, of crisis, a significant time in the story when several loose ends in the plot are tied together and yet even still leave the reader with much more to look forward to. It's a time when the story crescendos, when much of what has gone before uh, makes sense, and yet all is not resolved. Uh, in a sense, this crisis moment in the plot is the beginning of the end of the story. Well, as we come to this text this evening, uh, we see here that the kingdom of God is at hand. It is near, and it's it's like it's the beginning of the end. In the text that we will be unpacking this morning, here in verses 14 and 15, there is a, a proclamation by our Lord Jesus Christ that the kingdom of God is, is breaking into human history. In the grand history of redemption, the beginning of the end of all things begins here. When the promised Messiah proclaims the gospel of God and the coming of the kingdom. And it is because of this glorious reality, dear ones, that all of mankind is urgently called upon to repent and believe the gospel. There is a necessary urgency in all preaching. Any preaching class worth its salt will encourage young preachers to preach with urgency. Uh, there shouldn't be a kind of uh, a casual nature to preaching. Um, there should be an urgency to it because we believe that at any time Christ could return and judge uh, the living and the dead. There's a kind of urgency to preaching. And, and it began right here, of course, uh, with Christ himself saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. How do we respond to Christ saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom, kingdom of God is at hand. Well, we know. He tells us how to respond. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the message. The introduction to Mark's biography of sorts of Jesus Christ uh, ended in verse 13. The introduction ended in verse 13. And here in verse 14, it's kind of a new, a new section which launches us into the rest of of the book. Up until this point, we've been introduced, of course, to John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the promised Messiah. And we learn from verses 1 through 3 
that John the Baptist was a fulfillment of that divine prophecy which came from Malachi 3, verse 1, and Isaiah 40, and verse 3. And we learn that, that John uh, baptized Jesus in this baptism of, of what? Of repentance. And we say, well, why would, why would Jesus come under this baptism of repentance? He was perfect. He was sinless. He, he, he never sinned. He never broke the law of God. And so why should he come under this baptism of repentance? Well, because he was identifying himself with the people that he came to save, sinners. So he himself was not a sinner, but he was making the point that I come to represent my people who are sinners, and I will receive this baptism. He was beginning his public ministry. He was inaugurating his public ministry with this baptism of John, where the Father from the heavens declared, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the, the Spirit came in the form of a dove and descended upon him, empowering him for this ministry. In verses 13 and 14, we learn that Christ, the second Adam, was, was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. But unlike the first Adam, who sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Paradise, Christ was in the wilderness, and he did not sin. He did not fail to obey. And he fulfilled his role as the one who would put right what the first Adam made wrong for all of us. Christ obeyed the law perfectly as a representative of his chosen people, of all of those whom the Father would give him, and, and that through faith in him they would be counted as righteous in God's sight through faith in him. And so having overcome uh, this head-to-head -head battle with the devil, as it were, from the onset of this story, Mark wants us to be assured that Jesus is more than able and prepared to accomplish the mission that his Father gave him to do and in which the Spirit has empowered him to do. And so that's part of the beauty of this work of redemption. It's a triune work. The Father purposes this redemption and he sends his Son into the world. The Son willingly comes to do the will of his Father, to save the people whom the Father had given him before the foundation of the world. Here's where the doctrine of election comes in. And then the Spirit is sent into the church to apply this work of redemption to God's people. And the Spirit empowers Jesus Christ himself to carry out this mission. Now, look with me at verse 14. It says there, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. It's interesting to note here, isn't it, that Jesus did not begin his public ministry until John the Baptist was put in jail. It was not until this great preacher who was attracting tens, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people to the desert was himself removed from the scene when Jesus begins his public ministry. Perhaps this was God's way of emphasizing the fact that John the Baptist's ministry was over now that the Messiah was engaged in his public ministry of preaching. What was Jesus doing when he arrived in Galilee? Well, we can see what he was doing. He was proclaiming the gospel of God. He was proclaiming the gospel of God. In other words, he was preaching. A lot of people want to talk about Jesus in all kinds of ways, that uh, he was a social activist, or he was all about mercy ministry, and 
Uh, they want to put on him that really his ministry of compassion and healing and all these things were the, the reason why Christ came to be an example, a sort of compassionate example to the world. And yet here we see that Christ came to preach and then to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a, something that is not often emphasized about the ministry of Christ, surprisingly. Jesus was a preacher. He was a preacher of the gospel. The proclamation or heralding of the good news of salvation was his primary task during his public ministry. He didn't set up healing ministries. He didn't go into hospitals and heal everybody. This was not his aim. This was not his focus in ministry. His aim and his focus was the proclamation of the gospel because he believed, as we should, that it is through the word of God, it is through the gospel word of God that people will be saved and that the kingdom of God will advance. This is still the case today. This is what God is pleased to use to save and sanctify his people. And over and over again in the gospels, we see Christ preaching and teaching the truth with power and with authority. In the book of Acts, we see time and time again the preaching of God's word as the means that God used through the apostles to build the church. And throughout church history, the church has always been at its strongest when preaching is at a high ebb and faithful, word-saturated, Christ-exalting preaching. Uh, now you say, well, pastor, yes, we, we know this. Well, do we? Do we know it? Uh, and doesn't this need to be emphasized over and over again? As it just takes one generation to forget that it's through the faithful preaching of the word that the church is built up and strengthened. Uh, it's one thing I love about some of the reformed seminaries we have now uh, dotted around the country. Westminster Seminary, California. Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia. Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary, and all their gazillion campuses all over the place. These seminaries make it a point to teach the men coming up in the MDiv uh, degrees that it is through faithful preaching that the church is built and strengthened and comforted and encouraged and sanctified and called to Christ. And so it shouldn't surprise us that God himself tells us that it's through the proclamation of his word, faithfully preached, that he will save his people. Uh, look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you have your Bibles. See, I know some of you are tired this evening and your eyelids are heavy, and so it helps to have to flip around the Bible a little bit once in a while, you know? One of my friends uh, has the congregation stand up and sing a hymn in the middle of his sermon so they can wake up. It's probably a good idea. It's the Dutch. They have all the good ideas, you know. Um, they, have, they give out mint, big giant mints before the service too. I know you'd probably like that as well. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at uh, verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God 
through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And, and this really could be translated as well through the folly of preaching. Not just what we preach, but preaching itself. Preaching, think about it. It, 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 it seems so foolish that God will save his elect and build his church not through armies, not through uh, uh, weapons of war, although some have tried to do that in the past and they were totally wrong, wrong-headed in doing this and sinful. But the church will be built through, the, through proclamation, through the word. Uh, Paul says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation for what? Everyone who believes. And so it's through the word. It was something that Luther over and over again emphasized in his theology is that it is the word that, that the power of God comes through. It is, it's that saving power that comes through the word. And, and, and then through the, 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 the audible word and the preaching and the visible word and the sacraments. And so we are... We are led to Christ, and the, the, the saving power of God is operative by the Spirit through the Word. And so Christ came proclaiming the gospel of God. This is, this is why he came, to proclaim the gospel, the good news of God. So here in verse 15, Christ has been baptized, tempted in the desert, and is now in Galilee, preaching the glad tidings of salvation. Uh, verse 15 can be broken down as the two declarations and two imperatives. And I want to spend the rest of our time this evening looking at these two declarations and two imperatives. First of all, the two declarations of Christ. The first one is this, uh, that the time is fulfilled. Notice this phrase here, the time is fulfilled. What does Christ mean by this? Well, this is the appointed time. As you, as you think about time, we as Christians think about time linearly. And so time has a beginning and time will have an end. And here we are taught by Christ himself that this is the fullness of time. This is what all of time had been leading up to and all of time will be looking back to, as it were, until the end of time. The public ministry of the eternal Son of God made man, Jesus Christ. Again, here we have a high Christology. We, we look at time in reference to Jesus Christ, not in reference to the next big game or the next presidential election or whatever else the news is making a big deal out of. The appointed time of the coming of the Son of God has been fulfilled. The promises made in Isaiah 61.1 have been fulfilled in the arrival of the Messiah. Isaiah 61.1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the, to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Another verse that is a commentary on this is Galatians 4.4 where it says that the fullness of time has come. And in that fullness of time, it says that God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the fullness of time refers to the completion of God's sovereign timetable and the unfolding history of redemption. We must understand that everything in history has led to this point and everything must be understood in its relation to it. Time was never more full than when God became flesh and dwelt upon the earth, carrying out his glorious plan of salvation. One commentator explains it this way, quote, By sovereign decision, God makes this point in time the critical one in which all the moments of promise and fulfillment in the past find their significance in one awesome moment when Christ said uh, that the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. The time is fulfilled. Next, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here that Jesus is declaring to his listeners that in a new and glorious manner, the kingdom of God has broken forth into human history, even though the full appearance of the kingdom is yet to come. This is that now and not yet principle that we have discussed already. There is a now to the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God made man, is there He's been anointed for his public ministry, and he's proclaiming the good news. All wonderful things are being fulfilled there in this moment, and, and this is the inauguration of his public ministry, and the kingdom is at hand, and yet it is not there in its fullness. It will be there in its fullness one day in the future, hallelujah, but not yet. Many things are yet to be done. Again, here we are to understand with the coming of Jesus comes the beginning of the end of all things. Uh, there are, there's a lot of talk about the end times. Um, are we in the end times? The answer is yes, we're in the end times. We're in the end times since Jesus said this. We are in the end times. And at any moment, Christ could return. We don't need to read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal to figure out when Jesus is coming back. He can come back at any time. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so God has brought this into actualization. The kingdom has been brought into focus in the arrival of his son. Again, it's that now and not yet principle. The kingdom of God is at hand and yet not in its fullness as it will be when Christ returns and establishes the new heavens and the new earth. Christ makes two declarations. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because these things are so, Christ with a great deal of urgency speaks two commands or imperatives. He says, repent, and he says, believe the gospel. Uh, there can be uh, no more important commands or imperatives that are heard by the ears of sinful human beings than these two words, 
repent and believe the gospel. The first command is to repent. The first command is to repent. This word has become somewhat of a bad word among broad American evangelicals. Uh, the desire to kind of be welcoming and winsome and to keep people in the seats and coming back. Uh, there's a, a desire not to, to be too fire and brimstone-ish and to use uh, what they would think are antiquated words like repent, even though they're thoroughgoingly biblical words. Uh, but let's not use these words. It might turn people off and such. Uh, but here uh, we see that these are the words of Christ. Uh, though these categories may be unpopular with our culture, uh, they are essential uh, if we want to understand Christ's ministry and preaching. Uh, repentance is a word that has a negative connotation to many, but it should not be so among those who believe the gospel. Let's take a moment and define what repentance is. Repentance, as many of you will know, is a change of mind which leads to a change of behavior or action. It's a change of mind. It's a, it's a, it's a 180. Uh, it's a uh, it's a, a change of mind which leads to a change of action. And it's important to, to reflect upon what repentance is not because it is misunderstood. And, and the first thing that repentance is not is it's not worldly sorrow. Uh, there are a lot of people that mistake true biblical repentance with worldly sorrow, with, with tears and with sadness about perhaps something happening, a consequence to a sin and, and being sad about that. That's not repentance. It's not repentance at all, no. Second uh, Corinthians 7 and verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There is such thing as worldly grief or worldly sorrow that produces death. There will be a lot of people going to hell forever who are sorry and sad about decisions they made in life. But that is not true repentance. That is not true repentance. Secondly, repentance is not a part of the grounds of our justification. We need to remember that. Uh, repentance is not something we can rest in for our salvation. We rest solely on the work of Christ, and yet repentance is necessary, and none will receive pardon without it. Thirdly, repentance is not something to be done just once. It's to be done our entire lives as Christian believers. Uh, our lives ought to be one of continual daily repentance for sin and a turning to Christ and his word. And so these are the things that we need to remember about repentance. And then some positive things about repentance. Repentance, dear ones, is a gift from God. There's a false understanding of repentance that repentance is what we do before we become Christians. But we need to recognize that people who are dead in their transgressions and sins can't repent. They don't want to repent. They have no desire to repent because they don't have new hearts. And so what happens is when someone is dead in their transgressions and sins, Ephesians 2.1 and they are brought to spiritual life in union with Christ by grace, 
that what happens is at that moment that a sinner is brought into union with Christ, they begin repenting and believing. And that's the work of grace that the Lord does. So repentance itself is a gift from God. Jeremiah 31, 18. Turn me, O Lord, and I will be turned. Peter states that God exalted Christ, quote, in order to give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel, Acts 5.31. Acts 11.18, then to the Gentiles also God has given repentance unto life. Repentance is a gift uh, from God. And so those who are Christians are predestined and called and regenerated and and are given the gift of repentance and faith and are thus justified and adopted, sanctified and glorified. The Lord does these things for his own glory. And so, dear ones, the mark of a true, true Christian is that he or she is someone who repents. And I can't say this strongly enough. If your life is not marked by repentance, you are not a Christian. We must take this very seriously. This word repentance is so important. It's one of the first words that Christ proclaims in his opening sermon in his public ministry. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, then someone might ask, well, pastor, what is the nature of this repentance? How do I know if I'm truly repenting? Well, the nature of true repentance is, first of all, that one has a sense uh, of a hatred for sin, that there is a sense of a hatred for sin, that, that, that you are recognizing sin for what it is and not just living in some sort of casual uh, relationship with it, that there's a sense of hate for sin. Secondly, a sense of the holiness of God. If there's true repentance, there's a a sense not only of one's sin and a a hatred for sin, but a sense of the holiness of God and wanting to please God. And, and, And then thirdly, of course, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. A true repentance recognizes that to repent is to receive grace and forgiveness from God. Repentance without a sense of God's mercy and forgiveness is not true repentance. At all, it's just uh, one trying to clean up their own life. And so, let me ask: Have you, have you repented of your sins? Are you repenting of your sins? True repentance always leads to a true appropriation of the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we have this final imperative: to believe the gospel. And so it's something that we do all the time. We repent and we believe the gospel. This is not just something you preach at a Billy Graham crusade. It's something that we preach essentially every Lord's Day. And as we come to the table in a few minutes, and as we do every Lord's Day, we're called to examine ourselves and to do what? Starts with an R, ends with an N. We're called to repent to examine ourselves and to repent of any sin that we are aware of and to ask for forgiveness for sin that we are unaware of, even as we approach the table knowing that there is abundant grace and mercy and forgiveness for us at the table. Because at the table, we meet Christ and all of his benefits of salvation. And so it's it's essential that we understand that that a, 
a basic part of the Christian life is that we are a repenting people, a repentant people and a repenting people. And so if that does not characterize you, then you need to repent and believe the gospel for the first time and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. I have been in ministry for over 20 years and I know, as a matter of fact, that there are people sitting in congregations all over the world, some of them who have been there for years, who have never truly repented and believed the gospel. They're still relying on their own works, their own family background, their own uh, uh, spiritual privileges, or whatever they may be, and they're, they're, they have not repented of their sin. They're living in pride, and they're holding on to things, and, and they're not believing the gospel. They have all other kinds of things going on in their head and their heart, but it's not believing the gospel. And so I cannot say enough with, 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 with as much urgency as I need to, I want to say, repent and believe this gospel. And dear ones, this gospel is not trust God and he will make your life better. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not believe in God and he will make you healthy and comfortable. The gospel is not have faith in God and discover the champion within. The gospel is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, say that to the martyrs in second century Rome or the apostles. The gospel is not God has done all he can do. Now it's up to you to just believe. The gospel is not trust God and be more positive in your life. You see, these are the many false gospels of our day, but the Apostle Paul warns us about these false gospels, that even if an angel from heaven were to come down and preach one of these false gospels, that we should not believe him. In Galatians 1, 6 through 8, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The church at Galatia was turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, he says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand, Repent and believe the gospel, not a gospel, not a gospel that we come up with or that someone has imagined up, because there are many out there, but the gospel. What is this gospel? That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was sent by His heavenly Father, our triune, blessed God, had a purpose to send Christ into the world to become a man without ceasing to be God. To do what? To purchase redemption for guilty sinners. How did Christ do this? He came and he obeyed every aspect of God's law, outwardly and inwardly from the heart, and then as a perfect, righteous substitute, gave his life on the cross at Calvary, bearing our sins, all of them, and bearing God's wrath, all of it, for our sins. He was punished in our place. And he died. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. 
This is the gospel that we are to believe, that we are to rest in, that we are to lean into and to live in and to focus on and to hope in and to keep our eyes upon. This is the gospel that the preaching is is to call us to believe every single time the word is preached. And this is the gospel that we are to reflect upon and embrace and abide in uh, every time we come to the Lord's table, every time we witness a baptism. Repent and believe the gospel. It is the life of the Christian. And if there are those who are not living in this way, then, then, then you are not a Christian. And this doesn't mean that you repent and believe in the gospel perfectly, that you're some kind of perfect model of repentance and believe in the gospel. Our repentance falls short. We need to repent of our repentance. And so we recognize that. This isn't some kind of perfectionism. No, that's why we need Christ. No, but we do understand the Christian life essentially as recognizing that the time is fulfilled in Christ's coming, that the kingdom of God is at hand, though not in its fullness, that will come later, it is, it is at hand, the kingdom of God is broken into time through the ministry of Christ, which he still is actively ministering through his means of grace, and so we repent and believe the gospel. Those who do not repent and believe the gospel will spend everlasting life in hell. Christ preached about hell more than he preached about heaven. And so Christ, out of love for those he came to save, declared, repent and believe the good news that there is salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so may this compel us to live lives of repentance and faith in Christ alone. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this brief text which is packed with so much truth. We thank you, Lord, that you have reminded us this evening that there is a call to all of us to repent and believe the gospel, it's something we don't do just once in our lives, Lord, but, but every day, turning from sin, looking to Christ for grace and forgiveness in the gospel, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, keeping our eyes on things above, not on th earthly things, where Christ is seated at your right hand, and when he returns, we will be with him in that glory as we are ushered from this world of, of difficulty and trials and tribulation and sorrows. We thank you, Lord, that with all the scars that we receive here in heaven, we will receive a new body and we'll be ushered into perfect, joyful fellowship with you, O God, and with one another in Christ forever with the angels. O Lord, help us to keep this eternal perspective Help us to persevere, to carry on, to keep going, even with all the challenges we face. And may we do so always abiding in Christ, repenting and believing the gospel along the way, and not believing the lies of this world or of our sinful hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.